It is great to be here today. I am excited beyond words that I get to be a part of the 81st annual missionary conference. Earlier I was talking to, uh, to uh, Bill Pennington and I asked him, when you were sitting in that very first one, <laughs> did you think this would happen? He didn't answer me, and I'm not uh, tr- completely sure why, but we have a good relationship, I thought. 81 years, and many years before that, I'm sure. I don't know if you guys know this, because you're not from outside the church. This church has a a rich, long uh, tradition and a reputation in the community for being a group that is interested in and supportive of what God is doing around the world to throw out the lifeline to those who have never heard. It's a wonderful, wonderful tradition. Now, some of you may know that my uh, tradition here at the church uh, really has revolved around a singular group, and that's the men's Bible study. Uh, and every year they uh, ask me to come and teach the men's Bible study. Um, and so all I know about this church is uh, what I've seen in the Tuesday mornings. You look a lot better than, uh, than I expected, actually. See, normally they, are, they, they ask me to arrive in the middle of the night when it's dark. They, they bring me in a back door and they keep me away from the normal people. So I don't know what that's all about, but now here I am. I get to be in the big house. Not that big house. The big room, okay? Now, over the course of the next several sessions that we have together, um, I've been asked to do uh, a couple of things. Uh, and I've been asked not to do a couple of things. I've been asked not to teach an expositional sermon uh, based on a, a passage of Scripture that uh, we would argue from the Scriptures that the reasons why we should go out and throw out the lifeline, why we should reach the unreached and the unconvinced in the world. I, I've been asked not to do that because uh, probably a couple reasons. One is that you've already convinced of that. You wouldn't be sitting in this church. You wouldn't be sitting in this auditorium right now if you weren't convinced of that. Secondly, I was told that uh, you always, on a regular basis, get uh, brilliant exegetical uh, work uh, coupled with remarkable homiletical expertise. Did that sound the way you wrote it? Yeah, okay, good. All right. Just wanted to make sure I'm delivering the way I'm supposed to. So what I've been asked to do is to, to talk about what God is doing in the world what God is doing in the world and what, what God is using us to do in our, our very humble and, and ridiculously small way and what God is doing and what you might be able to do if you decide to be intentionally and actively and sacrificially involved in God's work around the world. I've been asked to talk about how God has led us and what He's doing in our small but uh, perhaps unique contribution to His his work around the world. The other thing I've been asked not to do is not to allow my message to go over two hours. Oh, that was not to allow the meeting to go over two hours. That changes everything, doesn't it? Olanihi Daramola, who's my Africa regional coordinator with Worldlink, has a saying. He's, he's from the Yoruba tribe in uh, Nigeria. And, and he says, he says, my people have a saying, which I think his people have a saying for everything. I, I think for the last thousand years, the tribal council has been sitting around saying, what, what possible scenarios can we think of where we need a saying? And they've been thinking of them. I don't, but he says, my people have a saying. He said, um, the Westerners have the watches, but the Africans have the time. 
And so even though I, I came on in African time, I'm going to try to get off in American time, all right? So we will try to move rather quickly. Now, you realize that that's going to be a chore for me. Three weeks ago, I was in uh, India. Uh, we were sitting in a, in a field with uh, about 12 to 1,500 people sitting on the ground uh, with their shoulders to shoulders, the knees in the back of the persons in front of them, and they were, they were sitting for hour after hour after hour listening to the Word of God. And so that's what I'm used to now. I'm going to try to get out of that as we as we go forward, because, because what they would say to me is, Jack, listen, uh, I just walked for three hours to get here. Uh, you need to give me three hours of sermon in order to make it worthwhile. I didn't hear an amen. I, I, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah, it took three minutes to drive here, and uh, you're, <laughs> let's close in prayer. <laughs> All right. Well, I got to get moving if I'm going to get moving. So, so let me let me do start off by introducing you to one of my colleagues in ministry. His name is Barnabas. Barnabas is standing in the middle there. Let me make sure that actually, yes, it is happening. So that's good. Uh, Barnabas is a uh, he's a simple village man in India. As you may know, uh, WorldLink works with uh, native missionaries around the world, indigenous uh, local missionaries, and uh, I'll share a little bit why that happens in a, in a couple minutes. But I want to introduce you to Barnabas. He's a simple village man who has simply come to know Jesus as his Savior and wants other people to do the same. Standing next to him on the right is Suku Thomas, who's our uh, area leader in that area, uh, one of our other missionaries on the far right, and uh, uh, Barnabas is family to the side of him. One of the things you need to know is that uh, as we partner with indigenous missionaries around the world, we get reports back as part of our accountability structure. Uh, we get quarterly reports back. The area leaders also do site visits. Our regional coordinators do site visits. And I go, which is the reason I was in India uh, recently, to see some of what God's doing through our, our partners. Sometime back, I received a, a report from Barnabas, and it, uh, it, it, the report basically has several sections. One is, uh, what, uh, how are you personally and your family? Uh, what are you doing? What activities have you done? What God is doing? What are the results of that activity? And then lastly, how can we pray for you? And in the third or the last section of how can we pray for you, there was a little line that he says, please pray for me. My house has fallen down. And I thought that's not, a, that's not a usual thing I receive in any of the reports from our partners around the world. So I, I wanted to follow up on this. So I, uh, I wrote back to, uh, to, this is, this means writing back, I guess. I don't know. It's, I emailed back with me. Actually, it's, it's voice recognition, but I, I emailed back to Suku because he speaks English. I said, Suku, tell me what's, you know, what's the backstory on this house falling down? And he sent me a picture and, uh, told me the story. You see, Barnabas had gone out into a forested village to, to lead people to Christ and to tell people who had never heard about Jesus about the, the, the wonderful lifeline that he uh, provides them. And when he went out there, he built himself a little hut to live in for him and his family. And building a hut there means sticking up some posts and then uh, taking some mud and forming it into bricks and letting it dry in the sun. And after it's dried, you know, forming a little wall there and putting a thatched roof on it. And that's what he had done. And that, that served him well for quite a while. After it served him well for quite a while, it, uh, then the rains came. The monsoon moved its way through, and, and you know the song, the rains came down and the floods came up, and the rains came down and the floods came up, the rains came down the sun, floods came up, and the house went splat. And so there's a picture of him standing on the shattered home and it, with his shattered dreams. And I imagine as I got that picture, and as you look at it, you, you might imagine going back to him and, and saying, uh, you know, Barnabas, uh, while you're standing there, uh, what's going through your mind? If you could speak Telugu, you could ask him that. What's going through your mind as you're standing on the, on the rubble of your shattered home? And he might say, 
Why, God? I moved here obediently. I've served here sacrificially. I stay here enthusiastically. Why, God? Why would you let this happen? How, God? How can this be for your will? How could this be for my good? How could this be for your glory? How, how God? And, and what, God? What do you want me to do? I've got no resources. I've got no money. He makes less than $50 a month. He's got nothing to rebuild with. What? What do you want me to do? I thought, God, that you had sent me here. I thought that you controlled everything. I thought that you cared for us. I had hoped that things would be so much different, that this mud hut would be my home and my ministry center. But now here I stand with a home shattered, with dreams shattered, and with my faith heading in that same direction. Now, push the pause button for a second. Let me ask you, have you ever felt that way? You ever felt that way? You ever stood with the slumped shoulders on the pile of your broken dreams? You may feel that way now. You may look around at your family and say, why, God? You may look at your finances, your occupation, your health. You may look at our communities. You may look at the national political outlook. And you may say, God, what in the world? Why? You stood on the rubble of a shattered dream, shattered hopes, shattered expectations and wondered how God could allow this because for every human eyesight, it looks like God is asleep at the switch. And confusion can lead to questioning, questioning to discouragement, discouragement to doubt. And if you've ever felt that way, I think you can feel and identify with Barnabas. And you can identify with a couple of earlier followers of Christ that I want to introduce us to for just a couple of minutes in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, the situation is that the early followers of Christ had, had, uh, had come to the end of their lifeline. They're laying in the, the rubble of their own concerns. In Luke 24, it says this in verse 13. It says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they were talking with each other about everything that had happened, everything that had happened, it's Sunday afternoon. These guys are heading back home and they're talking to each other about everything that had happened. What had happened? We know what had happened because we've got the story. A week earlier, Jesus had walked those same kind of dusty roads and, and, and made his way into Jerusalem. He came in on a what we call Palm Sunday, which we as most Christians will be celebrating in a few weeks. He arrived to the, to the accolades of the masses as he rode in. You remember on a, on a foal of a donkey fulfilling Zechariah 9-9. He came in and, and, and it says, your king will ride in on the foal of a donkey. And they shouted out. What did they shout? They shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save, savior. You're the one. You're the Messiah. They knew that that was a messianic prophecy. And they shouted out, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Right from uh, Psalm 119 or 118. And they knew that was a messianic thing too. That they were saying, you know what, this is it. This is the Messiah. You're the one who's come to save. You're going to throw out the hated Roman oppressors. You're going you're to set up the kingdom now. We have got God's plan figured out. You're coming to set up the literal, political, earthly kingdom that we had hoped on and raising Israel to a place of prominence. This is it. We got the thing figured out. And there's only one problem. That wasn't God's plan, was it? 
Then I run across a verse like this in Isaiah, where he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Because as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. You see, they had assumed that they had this Messiah thing figured out, tied up in a nice little bow, but over the next week, their package started unraveling. Instead of driving the hated Roman oppressors out of God's land, Jesus drives the ecclesiastical hucksters out of God's house. Instead of speaking truth to the powerful Romans and putting them down, he offends the sensitivities of the religious leaders. Instead of being driven by their praises to the rightful place on the throne of Israel, Jesus ends up being driven through the streets up a hill and then crucified. The glorious Savior mocked ingloriously, stripped, exposed, naked, killed. He began the week looking like a conquering king, invincible. He ends the week looking like a common criminal, dead on a cross, a fail and failed fraud, rejected by his countrymen, rejected by his own followers, rejected by human view by his own God. And so Sunday afternoon comes along. These two followers say, well, Passover is ended and so have our hopes, and so let's go home. And they start walking the path towards Emmaus. Shoulders slumped as they walk along. We we read what happened. It says, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself, and we know the story, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but Jesus himself came and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing while you're walking along the way? And they stood still, their faces downcast, their shoulders slumped. Amazing, they said. One of them named Cleopas said, hey, are you only a visitor in Jerusalem? Do you not know these things that have happened in these days? He said, there's this whole crowd of people who are leaving. We all know what has happened. Everybody knows what happened. Where have you been? What, have you been living under a rock for three days? Yeah, well, sort of, I guess, you know. He says, well, what things have happened about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and the people and the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped. We'll get back to that in a second. But but we had hoped that he was going to be the one that was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Adding insult to injury now, they said, well, you know, what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb this early this morning. They didn't find the body. They told us they saw a vision of angels who said he was alive. But then some of our companions came to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but, but, but he, him they didn't see. He was gone. He was gone. We had hoped. Three of the saddest words, I think, in Scriptures. We had hoped that he was going to be the one that redeemed Israel and laying with their shoulders down. Now, in 2016, sitting in Alden Union Church, we we have the benefit of hindsight and the benefit of the rest of the Scriptures being writ for us because we, we know the rest of the story. We know that Jesus didn't come to set up a literal political earthly kingdom. He came to set up a kingdom of eternal worldwide significance, a kingdom of redeemed people who have heard the good news, grabbed a hold of the lifeline, understood what God had offered to them, stepped across the line of faith, received blessings beyond their wildest dreams. We see it clearly now. We see that... uh, 
they had hoped for lesser things, but God had a greater plan. They hoped for lesser things, but God had a greater plan. They, they had hoped, wait a second, this is door number one. Door number one is where we want to go. I think this is what God wants. This is great. This is wonderful. This is super. And God says, no, 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 no. I got door number two for you. So much better than what you think. Incalculably better than your greatest dreams. And that's the story of Cleopas. It's the story of Barnabas. I'll tell you the rest of it in a minute. And it's the story of Jack and Nancy Nelson. My wife and I both came to faith in churches that are similar to this, who understood the privilege and the responsibility of sharing God's good news with the rest of the world. So early on in our experience, both of us had thought, wow, I think the way to do that is for us to get up and go to another country and live out our lives serving in sacrificial, intentional ways. And so when we got married 33 years ago... um, we had intended that within a year we'd be just like some of you guys, <laughs> that we would be in another country somewhere, uh, living out our lives and serving Christ, bringing the light into the, the darkness. But, but God had another plan. We understood the truth that God had commissioned this generation of believers to bring his love and good news to just generation of lost and hurting people around the world. But we didn't know exactly what that was going to look like. What was the most efficient way for that to happen? Well, one of the most efficient ways for that to happen is for us to go, and that's the only thing I knew. But a funny thing happened on the way to the world. God said, uh, door number two, Jack. I got something different for you. After many years of being in pastoral ministries and church planting in the United States, always with a mind that said, wait a second, I thought, God, you were going to use us in the rest of the world. God allowed me to work with a ministry that's in a number of countries around the world. And I started traveling and meeting indigenous native Christian brothers and sisters who were doing the very same thing that I was going to do had I gone to their country, but doing it so much better than I could have because they're so much smarter than I am. And I started looking at them and comparing them to Nancy and I. And I noticed that when it comes to language, that they knew the language because they had learned it. I would take me two to five years to learn their language and a lifetime to try to to, uh, perfect it, and I probably wouldn't do that. Hay muchas personas hablan español en este grupo, pero no me. I don't do it. I look at culture. You know what? I'm an outsider in all the cultures I go to. I've been to countries all around the world. I'm an outsider. All right? I don't look like I'm from Latin America. I don't look like I'm from Africa. I don't look like I'm from uh, you know, South Asia. I, and, and more than that, I don't, I don't think like I'm from there. But my indigenous brothers and sisters do. And they know how to take the unchanging Word of God into a, their changing culture. I looked at the readiness, and I knew. I knew because we wanted to go. It would take two to five years. It would take two years or so for us to, to learn the language, to raise funds, to, to decide to sell off our house. And you know, to, you know, My brothers and sisters I kept meeting in those countries, they're ready immediately. And I knew, and you know, because you're a mission-minded church, you know that the vast majority of unreached people in this world who have never heard of the name Jesus live in countries that either totally prohibit or greatly restrict Westerners like me for going and sharing as frontline evangelistic missionaries. So I knew that I couldn't go to unreached tribes, but my indigenous brothers and sisters could. They had access. 
I knew for continuity I would want to come back every once in a while, see my family, see the churches that supported me, etc. They always stayed there. I looked at longevity, and I knew that I would probably want to come back and retire in my, my home, but they're already in their home. And I kept seeing this over and over, and I, and I was looking at me and Nancy, nobody else in the world but me and Nancy and my indigenous brothers and sisters, and I thought, wow. And then something happened. It was one of those seminal moments in my life where I was talking with a guy from Liberia, and I won't go through the whole story, but this is what I learned. I learned that I knew that to send Nancy and I to another country would cost forty to $70,000 a year with our family. But my indigenous brothers and sisters could uh, be fully unleashed to do service in their own countries for pennies on that. So I said, wait a second, God, I see all these opportunities with my brothers and sisters and they have no resources. And then I come back to the United States and I see my brothers and sisters here with incredible resources but no opportunities to go to unreached areas or to go to restricted areas. I can't go and and do frontline evangelist work in Pakistan. I'd lose my head, literally. But my Pakistani brothers and sisters can. And so I kept seeing this and I kept saying, God, I, I did this dangerous thing. You ever done this? I said, God, you got to do something about that. Yeah, you see what happened, right? He slapped us on the back of the head and said, Jack, I've been preparing you to do something about this. And so 14 years ago, we started WorldLink to link indigenous native Christians in other lands who want to be missionaries to their own countries with the resources they need to do that, whether that's a a $35 a month salary or whether that's a bicycle or whether that's some training or whether that's some books and library, uh, whether that's a series of best practices on how to do you know, evangelism in a Muslim context. All these things we're trying to do is to resource them. Is what we're saying is God's doing there. Let's un- come underneath and reach and, and help you do what you want to do. So what we say is that we unleash a multitude of indigenous missionaries to share God's tangible love and His good news with their own countries and the world's unreached people. Basically, what we're looking to do is to take a heart for the gospel here and a heart for the gospel there and put them together so that the two become joined. And then the work is done. They're linked together, and so we can serve God together. And that's what basically WorldLink is all about. And so what we've got to do is I got the privilege of going around the world and, and, and finding and identifying and qualifying and training if necessary and unleashing indigenous native missionaries to reach their own countries for Christ. And by God's grace, totally by his, you know, not because of any, you know, brilliance or hard work or whatever that we got, um, he's allowed us to spread to over 300 missionaries in 33 countries. And, uh, and uh, what we're doing is simply helping them to reach their own countries for Christ. People like Dorcas Mujigani. Uh, Dorcas uh, is in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I'm going to tell you her story tonight. She reaches out to women who are victims of sexual violence in the Congo. In the northeast part of the Congo, up to 50% of the women who have been sexually violated because of the militias that are in that area. And she reaches out and brings God's love and good news to them. People like Suku and Jesse Thomas, who you saw a picture of earlier, uh, who's an area leader for us in Sathupali, India, reaching out with his missionary team to people who have never heard of the name of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you a story about some, uh, some amazing things that are happening with Paul Raj, one of the, the team members there. Stephen Twan, who uh, I was with in Nigeria a little while ago. Uh, Stephen uh, works in the northern section. As you, many of you know, the northern section, the, the, the top 13 states of Nigeria are under uh, Islamic law, where Boko Haram is running wild and looking for Sharia to be laid out in the whole area. And Stephen works there. 
amazing work he's doing to bring God's love and good news and to strengthen the churches that remain there as the oil money uh, from the Middle East pushes south and tries to, uh, to take over areas that were formerly animist and Christian. Mildred Prudu Lacan works in uh, Guatemala. Uh, she works with children, and uh, a lot of our people work with children because of the importance is as a uh, brother said, that you know, the vast majority, up to 85% of people who make a faith commitment in, 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 to Christ do so between their 4th and their 14th birthday. Uh, so we at our peril as a church ignore those children here in the United States or around the world. And so Mildred works with them, who, some of them who are conscripted to work in the sugarcane fields in, in Guatemala or living on the dumps in Guatemala City, the second largest dump in Latin America. Iomi and Minori, Iomi's story I'm going to tell you tonight as well. They work in Sri Lanka, working with uh, refugees. John, who's a dear brother in Liberia, works with uh, former child soldiers. And many of their stories I'll be giving you tonight, but I want to talk to you about things that God's been doing. And there's some who are anonymous. I, I simply will not tell you their name or show you their faces because it would be way too dangerous for them. And it'd be fun for us, but, but not for them. So what has God done? By God's grace in the last 12 months, only by His grace and by His empowerment, because only God can do it. We can plant seed. We can water the seed. God gives the increase. Uh, over almost half a million people have heard the, the, the good news of Christ. 24,000 of them are in villages or places where they had never heard of Jesus before, which is an amazing, amazing thing. Thank you, Lord. And nearly 50,000 have made professions of faith in, in Christ. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Thousands of first-generation believers are being discipled and brought up in the faith. And I want to share a little story with some of them for you. If you go to the Chak tribe in Bangladesh, if you go to the Joshua Project, Joshua Project is a uh, is probably the preeminent uh, missiological study thing, and they look at unreached peoples and unreached groups and tell you how many percentage and what's happening there. If you could see this, you can't see this, but you'll have to trust me, and I can show it to you later. Uh, they, they will say that there are 0% Christians in the Chalk tribe. 0% Christians. No Christians. I will tell you that you right now are going to know more than they do. Because there are not 0% Christians. The man on the left in this picture is named Suman Chak. It's not his real name, but I'm going to say that because I don't want you to put... I know this is being recorded, and I don't want this to go out to Bangladesh. Suman came out of the Chak tribe, and he became a believer in Jesus Christ. He went back to the tribe. He was rejected by his family. He was kicked out. He went, and he was able to receive some theological training. He became a WorldLink partner, and he's gone back into the Chak tribe to lead people to Christ. And those people, those young men that you see there, have all come to faith in Christ from that tribe. And when I was there in November, we, uh, we spent some time together, and not only those young men, they have now have another generation of young men who have, have, have come out of the villages and come to faith in Jesus Christ because of the, the work of that one man going back in and now others going back in. And we were there, and, um, and these guys, they've started what they call the Chalk Bible Institute. Uh, they've moved to a little larger area where they're not as persecuted, and they've, they've, uh, Suman has got two rooms. They're about 10 by 14 feet, and all these guys uh, live in those two rooms, and they set up these little chairs, and they study the Bible, and they study, and they learn, and they grow, and they are discipled, and they pray, and they worship, and, uh, and that's what they do in that one you know, room. And then they move over to the next room, and it's their library. That's the entire library of the entire Chalk Bible Institute. But it's a multi-purpose room because if you swing to the right there, that's the cafeteria as well. 
Uh, it's a two-burner stove. They have rice on one side, some vegetables on the other side. If you look to the right of the picture, you're going to see the entire uh, wardrobe of 14 young men hanging there. At night, they worship, they spend time together, and then they, uh, they grab one of those blankets and they sit on the cold, dark, damp floor and they go to sleep. They have on their wall this, and you can't read it there, so I'm going to read it from here. It's from Psalm. There we go. Excuse me. It's from Psalm uh, 92. It says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. And that's what they're doing. They get up in the morning, and on weekends they go back into the, the villages and the forested areas, and they share the loving kindness of God. And, and God's, by His grace, wonderful things have been happening, and people have been coming to Christ. But, but, uh, but it's not an easy area. Uh, about ten days after I left there, uh, two of the young men, uh, you saw their picture, right? The two guys, the guy in the green shirt in the second row and the, the one sitting next to him, um, they went back to the villages and they started sharing about their faith in Christ and how God had changed them. And, uh, and some things happened, and I'm not going to go into a lot of um, story, but uh, they had uh, an idol got broken. And, uh, and uh, they were seized and they were beaten. Uh, their head was shaved to look somewhat like mine, which I didn't think was a really bad thing, but in their culture it is. It's an insult to have your head shaven like that. It's an insult to have a shoe tied around. And they were made to parade through the village banging on makeshift drums in order to draw people out so that they could be seen as, as being criminals, as being people who had subverted their gods. Well, these are the type of young men who come to faith and young women and they go back. And by the way, real quickly, they, uh, uh, they have led a lot of young women to faith, but the young women cannot uh, become public believers because if they become public believers, their parents will immediately marry them off to some older man in another village and they will be immediately taken away. So they've got all these young girls who, who are coming to know and to learn and to grow to love Christ. You've got these young guys who do as well and they're praying for somehow to figure out how they can you know, get together because these guys got kicked out of their homes. Their parents aren't going to marry them off to these girls, and the girls' parents aren't going to allow them to get married to these guys. So if you want to pray for something, pray for that for these guys. As you've heard, orphans and abused and abandoned children are huge in the world. Depending on whose statistics you use in India, there's up to 40 to 47 million orphan children in India. And so a lot of our our missionaries do the same thing as this that happens in, in South Africa. They go into a village, they go, they go looking, and as they're leaving, they find children who are just sitting on the, on the, the trash heaps. And what are they going to do? Because they know the passion of God for children, because they know that true religion and undefiled is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows with their afflictions. And they go and, they're gonna, and they take those kids and they, they are starting to care for them. So we're building children's homes. And what is happening is those children come in and they, they go from being traumatized to being loved in a, in a large family. And then they, they learn about Christ and they learn about you know, His love for them and His love for the people back in their villages. And these kids are now becoming the next generation of indigenous missionaries. Hundreds of villages have been reached. Thousands of teens have learned life skills. Tens of thousands of people have uh, gone to camping, and that's some of that children's works. Hundreds of women who are victims of sexual violence. I'll tell you more about them tonight. 
have been found and they they found spiritual and and uh, emotional and physical healing and now a, a way of life let me tell you about a couple of them in in the democratic democratic republic of the congo uh it's a resource rich but a desperately poor area in the northeast of the congo they have mines where where there's amazing amounts of of metals metals that you and i use in our in our ipads and in our iphones and uh, they're all there because we buy them, and they, they, the, the mines, they draw lots and lots of young men, and when there are lots and lots of young men without young women, somebody's going to figure out that they need some young women there, and so a lot of young women are either economically or physically forced into the sex trade. And these young women who you see there, they're called uh, ducklings. Uh, derogatorily in their their culture because they go through those barracks areas and they follow along with their pimp and they follow along like ducklings and they're picked off by the men and they're used. And Nestor, one of our partners, said, no, not while I'm not on my watch, that's not going to keep happening. These women need a, a different way of life. They need an opportunity. They need an, an option. And so he began to, to pray, and they started a program called Bamatu, which stands for Bamama Tutante, which, which means the, the uh, uplifting or the raising up of girls. And that's what they're doing. They're lifting them up out of the darkness and into the light. And they, uh, we were able to buy uh, sewing machines, the treadle machines, because you can't, you've got no electricity there. And so they're learning a trade. They're coming to know that they don't have to do that. They have a different option in life. And not only that, there's an option spiritually in life. And, and by the time this first class, which is two-year-long class, is going to graduate in a few months, all of those young women have come to faith in Christ as well. Thousands have followed Christ in baptism. As I said, I was in India a couple of weeks ago, uh, just outside Calcutta. Uh, Tufan Biswas is one of our partners, and and they have led uh, people to, to Christ. And and there, we saw a, a wonderful little baptism. Thirteen new believers, village, simple village folks, coming to faith in Christ. This is a one of my favorite numbers. Zero. Uh, zero of our um, partners have been lost. They've all been persecuted, many have been beaten, many homes have been burned down, but uh, none of them have lost their life because of their service for Christ, and I'm so thankful for that. Amen. If you want some more information, by the way, you all should have received a, uh, one of our annual reports when you came in there. Take a look at that when you have a chance. So what now? 30 seconds. What now? The plan is to put more workers on more fields, reaching more people. That's all we, that's all we know how to do. <laughs> and I wish I could say I'm, I'm a brilliant strategist. I'm not. All i got to figure out is that uh, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of indigenous native Christians in their countries who want to reach their countries for Christ, and we're going to be hopefully a part of that. That's our You'll see in that uh, annual report, that's the growth chart over the last 14 years. I want to see that thing really ramped up. <laughs> now let me end where I, where I started. i got, I got 90 seconds left in African time. Push the play button again. We left uh, Barnabas standing on the rubble of his shattered dreams and shattered hopes as he stood on the on the dirt, being prayed for by his his partners in ministry. I got that letter about that situation, and and God kind of tugged on my heart. I sent a letter back to to Suku. I said, Suku, what's what's the deal? You know, how how much would it cost to build his house up again? He said, Well, it'll cost a couple hundred bucks to build his his dirt house again. And then almost sheepishly in the email, I don't know how you judge sheepishly in an email, but I I did. So 
Uh, almost sheepishly, he said, well, you know, but if we wanted to build it out of block, out of bricks, it cost about $1,000 to build him a house. And so through a series of events, you know, God raised up $1,000, and we sent it over there to build him a house. Now, Barnabas is a, as I said, a simple village man. He doesn't know construction. He doesn't know project management. So, so Suku was going to run the, uh, the project for us. And, uh, and Suku's there. He's, he's, you know, got the, the stuff together. They've laid out a plan. Uh, the, the family gathered local rocks and they made a, a, a foundation. And then, um, then they wanted to build the, the building. And so, because Suku knew project management, uh, he, they got the brick laid out and brought to the village, which was a chore in itself. But then he needed to get a bricklayer, a, a block mason, right, to go do this. And so, so how do you do that when you don't know what's going on? At the time, uh, Suku lived in Rajamundri, which was uh, three hours' drive from the village where Barnabas was. So he said, well, how am I going to do this? He said, uh, I, you know, I, the only way I can do this is, is the same way that a lot of people do it here. You know, you go down to the local Home Depot and you're in the parking lot. There's some guys looking for work. <laughs> they don't have a Home Depot there. So, you know, so you go to the little village, the, the, the area, the, the, the little town with the crossroads, and you look for the group in the market who are looking for work. So he walked up to this group that he had never met before in a village he had never been before. And he says, listen, I need someone who can go lay block in a village, uh, you'll have to stay out there for about a week. Uh, you know, can anybody do that? And he said, a young man stepped forward. He said, I can go. I have no family, so I, I can go and do this, and I'd, I'd, I'd love the money. And so they negotiated a price. They hopped in Suku's car, and they started to drive out toward the villages. And as they're driving towards the village, the young man, as they're engaging in conversation, he says, well, you know, what village are we going to? And Suku told him. And the man was, young man's strangely silent. And he asked, whose house are we working on? Suku told him, Barnabas. And the man, the young man said, I'm, I'm so sorry, can you stop the car? I need to get out. Can you stop? I, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to mislead you. I just cannot go. Please let me out of the car. And Suku said, I, I realize this is not normal. So, I, so he started quizzing the young man, getting his story, and this is what he found. The young man's name is Karthik. And Karthik is Barnabas's son who years later, earlier, when Barnabas moved to the village, had left the family. He said, I want nothing to do with this village life. I want nothing to do with your God. I want nothing to do with the family. He went to a larger area. He learned a trade on how to lay block. And now he was sitting in a car with Suku. And Suku talked to him, counseled him, and he agreed to go back to the village. They rode down, this is the village, this is the street we took to, to get to uh, Barnabas's village. And as we got to the village, as they got to the village, there was an amazing reconciliation between family and Karthik. And over the course of the next week, there was an amazing reconciliation between God and Karthik as this young man committed himself to faith. That's him standing on the foundation there, ready to build. And he did build. He built not only a house that Barnabas now has, but he built a relationship with God during that time. And that's his house now. It's uh, two rooms. It's got a, a room for the family and a room for the ministry. It's made out of bricks. It's got a, a corrugated roof. It's, it's greater than he could have ever, ever dreamed. And they had a, a, a dedication ceremony, and, and uh, Suku prayed, and he said, God, uh, I want this house. Would you please make it a place of reconciliation? As God has, you've reconciled this family, please reconcile many people to you. And there's the, the family standing in front of the house. 
And this is my, uh, by the way, this is my favorite picture of the whole thing. You know why? Because nobody in the village speaks English. (laughs) I know exactly why they put the sign up there. They put it up there so they can send me a picture. (laughs) I went there shortly after that, and and yes, we are all standing on the same level. This is my, uh, my uh, Sesame Street picture. You know, one of these things is not like the others. <laughs> so I imagine if you went back, in fact, uh, for time-wise, once the praise team, why don't you guys start on your way up here while we, while we finish this, because I know you guys got a song you're going to lead us in. Imagine if you went back and... Uh, and asked Barnabas while he was standing with his shoulders slumped on that, that rubble, if you said, hey, Barnabas, uh, would you like your house back? He'd say, yeah. That's all I want was my mud hut. That's all I want back. I want door number one. That's my plan. That's what I really desire. And I imagine that it, when I was standing with Barnabas here, if I turned to him and I said, hey, Barnabas, do you want door number one? He'd probably throw me out of the village. Because he didn't get a mud hut back. God had door number two for him. God had a solid home, a ministry center, and better than all of that, he had reconciliation with his son in mind. You see, he had hoped for lesser things, but God had a greater plan. That's Barnabas' story. It's my story. It's Cleopas' story. And you know what? This week it may be your story. It may be that you're sitting here saying, you know what, I think i got my plan all wrapped up. I know what God wants to do with my life. I know what He wants me to do with my money. I know where I'm going. i got this whole thing wrapped up into a nice little bow, and over the course of this week, maybe God's going to unravel that, and He's going to say, you know what, i got a, I got door number two for you. you got to know it's amazing. So over the course of this week, I'm going to ask you to sit and to, to listen to intently seek, to prayerfully pursue, to eagerly anticipate, and to submissively follow what it is that God's greater plan for you is. And I think it's going to be a great week. Thanks, guys. Lead us. Let's stand and together we'll sing our